Well, it was a cold, wintry evening as I walked home from the cafeteria as a freshman in college to my dorm on the campus of a evangelical Christian college in the Midwest, Chicagoland. And hurrying between buildings, my body was cold, the temperature was below freezing. But on the inside, both internally as well as in those buildings, it was warm. Because I had come to the place where I wanted to learn, a place where other people were Christians, like me, where I would experience professors who were Christians and classmates who were Christians. And that was the whole idea, was to intentionally surround yourself in a place where faith and learning can be integrated in every subject, every day. And like I said, this was something that I had chosen for myself. And Christian classmates, professors, ideas, teaching, they were all in abundant supply at Wheaton College. Not only did we learn about the scriptures and theology in our classes, we had chapel three times a week, uh, supplemented by special conferences and speakers that would stretch our faith. Uh, there were also ministry opportunities like crazy, uh, things that you could sign up for, opportunities to serve, discipleship, small groups, prayer gatherings, worship nights, Christian music concerts. I made use of it all. I filled my schedule as much as I could, diving in head first. And for the most part, my freshman year was a time of personal growth, spiritual growth, learning more about what it means to be in that adult category of 18 and up now. Um, and part of that growth, though, was that I learned to question things as well. And I learned to, oh yeah, this is a picture of me and my roommate in the, in the cold, on the hallway, the hallway of our dorm. Me, me and my roommate, Nate, we were, we were great friends, and he was the best man at my wedding. So we had all these conversations. And so I want to tell you about a particular conversation that I had based on some questions that had been stirring in my mind during that freshman year as I was in this Christian evangelical bubble, saturated with the things that I wanted, far from home, of course, in the cold, of course, but tons of people who love Jesus and followed Jesus, and took their faith seriously as I did and do. So, Nate and I are talking on the way back from the cafeteria to our dorm room, and I'm like, Nate, we're surrounded by Christians here in this bubble, and that's kind of the idea. Like, you kind of have to be one to go to this college. It's, it's not just a requirement, but it's also a, a desire. But when we learn about things like sharing our faith and reaching the world, and making a difference, who are we supposed to share our faith with if everyone in this bubble already knows the same information that we have? And I know sometimes we go on, you know, particular ministry projects where we, you know, talk to people um, in the city or go out for a day and talk to strangers, which is a faith-building experience if you've ever done that. But isn't there something in between? Is there something in between just 
the whole bubble of everyone being Christian and then just being thrown out to the sidewalk where everyone's a stranger? What about this, this middle ground? Is there any place where you're actually supposed to share your faith in the context of a relationship with someone who does not share your faith? And we talked about that. And we talked about why there's all this concentrated Christian talent, if you will. It's not spread out. It's just kind of bundled together where we're spending all this time together. But how are we supposed to share our faith? And we had a good conversation about that. And over the coming years, I I learned that as much as I wanted to be there and as much as I was growing in that environment, there were some things that Jesus taught that are just not possible when you're in a Christian bubble all the time. And there are certain things when it comes to following Jesus that happen outside of relationships with Christians. And this is probably obvious to a lot of you who have read the Bible, right? Like Jesus is talking to people all the time who are different than him. He's sharing his story, he's listening to other stories, and there's something that happens in that interchange when we're around people who are different from us. And so when you're in this Christian space, there are good things about it as well. We share a vocabulary, we share a common value system and common scriptures and faith. We also share some uh, humor and common jokes. And so throughout this message, I will be sprinkling some different uh, Christian humor memes to keep me interested as well. Um, And they'll come in sets of three, like a good sermon always has three points. And so uh, the first set of three, I'm going to make sure this is on here. Okay, so here we have someone who is saying, be merciful to me, oh God, for men hotly pursue me. When I was in college, (laughs) um, this was an actual sign in the girls' dorm, kind of as a joke understandably, um, but I didn't have a picture of it, so I kind of re- recreated it. We can joke about these, these scriptures as well as understand that there's different meanings to the idea of uh, being hotly pursued, but those are the kind of jokes you make at an evangelical college. Um, when your body's a temple, but you want to make it a megachurch, um, again, if you're Outside the Christian bubble, you might not understand about the scripture where your body is a temple, but this person, for those of you just listening to the podcast, it's a picture of someone eating a whole pizza. And so your body's a temple, but this person wants to make it super size, mega church size. And then this one uh, didn't really apply to me because I didn't really grow up with the theology of the rapture and dispensationalism, but a lot of my classmates did. And so this, this meme is of someone sitting on their bed, scared, uh, SpongeBob. Ten-year-old me thinking my parents were raptured because they're taking longer than usual at the grocery store. So if you can relate to this at all, or you're even chuckling, then you've probably spent some time with Christians in a, in a Christian space. Okay, so that's one out of three sets of memes. Don't worry, there's more humor to come. The rest is not all boring. Just some of it. So... We are now at the final letter of our BLESS series, the fifth and final letter, the S in BLESS. And if you've been following along, each letter stands for something. Uh, Begin with prayer is B. L is listen with care. 
E is eat together. S, Pastor Cheryl last spoke on serving with love. And today we finally come to sharing your story. And these things really work best together, right? You're eating, you're praying, you're sharing, you're listening. These all can happen in the same half hour. It doesn't all have to be sequential. But what does it look like to actually share your story? And how does that happen in today's day and age? That's kind of what we're going to be talking a little bit about. And so our scripture for today comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And if you have it in your bulletins, I think you can read it along with me. It's around here somewhere. Is it in your bulletins? Okay. Let's read it together. We'll just read it through once out loud together so it can kind of wash over you so it's kind of familiar as we're going through. And then I'm going to highlight some specific things as we go through each of our three points, which actually line up really well with the three, uh, three or four verses in this passage. So let's start with we declare. Ready, begin. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you also may have fellowship with us and trust our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this book of 1 John, I didn't realize this, but there's a whole bunch of rabbit trails you can go down when you start studying the book of 1 John. I didn't even realize this. But um, there are some sections of the New Testament that get less attention than others. And sometimes this section of seven books between Hebrews and Revelation, if you don't include Hebrews or Revelation, there's seven books in between there. And they're sometimes known as the Catholic epistles or the general epistles. But they're often, often overlooked, probably because they're closer to the end. But as I was thinking about this and, and, and remembering some of the... Um, instruction I've received on this, it was really a, a rabbit trail down the road of, this is different because it doesn't start off with someone announcing who's writing. It doesn't have a specific audience. We don't know for sure if there was a single author, although a lot of folks attribute it to the apostle John because it has echoes of uh, the beginning of, of John. Um, more likely, scholars believe it was something that was compiled over time and in a certain sense was uh, inspired by the legacy of John. And the best way I can think about that is uh, in the world of pop music, right? You have musicians that inspire the next generation. So if you've listened to any James Brown and then you listen to Michael Jackson, it's like, oh, there's some inspiration there between Michael Jackson being influenced by James Brown. And then if you listen to Bruno Mars and you've heard Michael Jackson before and you hear Bruno Mars, you're like, oh, I'll bet he's inspired a little bit by Michael Jackson and James Brown. And so in a certain sense, the Apostle John is like the James Brown. And then we have books later on that are in that same line, even if they weren't necessarily penned by one author. They're still in this 
library of scripture in this section of books. And in some ways, it doesn't actually function like a typical letter that you would find, say, from the Apostle Paul in other parts of the New Testament. It just kind of starts with this, uh, we declare what was from the beginning. Like, who is we and who are we declaring it to? Um, Apparently, that's not the point because otherwise it would be in there. The point is the content of what's being proclaimed and what's being declared. And so that brings us to the first point in your outline, which is God has been at work from the beginning and God is active now. Just like the first verse of this passage says, we declare to you what was from the beginning. Kind of sounds similar to in the beginning was the word. And there's something that's been happening from the beginning where God has been at work. And we are called to join that and be part of that and understand that better and better because we believe that God is still active now. And that supplies the basis for everything that we're going to talk about today when it comes to sharing your story. If God isn't active now, if God wasn't active at the beginning, it changes the whole way that we share our story as as if we're the one who has to start the action or we're the center of it instead of God's action being something that we're joining with. Okay, we're going to pause for some memes, like I promised. So here is um, a security person checking with European Jesus. Um, Did you bring any alcohol, sir? And Jesus says, no, just water. But then he winks. Because he can turn it into wine, which I guess is alcohol. So so we have a, a winking white Jesus there. Um, and then here's what I thought was, was great. When pastors hide an important lesson inside a funny story, and if you can look closely, it uh, might be hard to see, but there's medicine hidden inside a juice box. <laughs> so this little girl is sipping the medication, thinking that she's drinking juice. It's a very clever idea. I've never actually um, done that before, but any parents, has this ever worked? Or is it just me? No. I mean, it's a lot of work to actually like cut that square out, but... Apparently, it's been, it's been done. Um, and if you've ever listened to a message where the pastor's trying to make a point and, you know, she or he puts a little funny story in there, then you can kind of relate to this one. Maybe it's happening right now. I don't know. Theoretically. Uh, and this one has really good theology. Um, how I see myself and how Jesus sees me. So we have the contrast between an older and younger uh, I guess they're not both the same character, but they're of the same kind. Um, little Grogu there and, and, and Yoda. So that, there's a difference there. There's darkness and light. There's how Jesus sees us and how we see ourselves. I hope this is how Jesus sees my sermon, because sometimes as I was preparing, I felt more like the first image. <laughs> All right, so let's get to the second point, which is that God's activity in the world is tangible. Tangible. It's real. It's authentic. It can be sensed. It can be described. There's still mystery to it, but it's enough that you can share about it. It's enough that you can write about it and build a whole tradition on what you have experienced of this word in the flesh 
Jesus and what he taught and who he is and how that changes who we are. Let's look at verse 2 real quick in this passage. It says, this life was revealed, this, this word of life, because uh, right before that in verse 1 it says, this is concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So revealed is mentioned twice in that verse. This life, this revelation of Jesus is something that whoever put this letter together was really intent on stating from the very beginning because everything else flows from that, including the passion to share it, including the idea that it's a joyful message, that it's something to be enjoyed, but also shared so that that circle of, of folks enjoying it can grow. And so when it says this life was revealed and we've seen it and testify to it and declare to you that it was with the Father and was revealed to us, there's that connection being made from the beginning, the creator, and then how that is revealed. God the Father is revealed through Jesus. So all these different threads are coming together between the beginning, the creator, and the Father, and the word of life. I want to talk a little bit about things that are, are tangible for a second. And I was wondering myself, you know, how do you describe just the tangibility of the good news? And how does it actually make a difference beyond just, you know, more people in church or more money donated? Like, how do we actually measure that? Are there ways that that's ever been done sociologically, like the influence of people's faith? And lo and behold, this week, there was um, a study. Don't worry, I'll explain the little bar graph in a minute, and I know it's really small. But um, I read an article on NPR's Planet Money where it was describing the work of an economist at Harvard, uh, Dr. Raj. And Dr. Raj has been crunching numbers with a whole team of economists for years and years. Um, and some people in the article refer to him as the Beyonce of economists. Okay. Um, great. Um, so he has credibility in the, in the number-crunching uh, economics world of measuring things like social capital, the, the, the power and influence that you have that isn't always easy to measure in terms of your relationships and who you know and what that does for you uh, socioeconomically. And so in this study, um, they were looking at how when you consider different factors, such as where people live or where they go to school. Um, there's a lot of socioeconomic division in the United States, which is not news. There's division geographically, by class, by race. Um, and what they were trying to figure out is, why are there some places and some locations where people are more socioeconomically mobile, where they have less social capital, but they can get more, and they're more likely to get more in certain areas. They even have a map with different colors that show certain areas have more mobility than others. And they were wondering why. Why is it that some folks are pretty much, you know, really fighting upstream if they want to try to change their socioeconomic status? And then in other places, it's still hard, but 
less so, and there's more likelihood of, you know, say, going from the lower class to the middle class or from middle class to upper class economically. And what they discovered is that, yes, the, the geography really matters, um, and so that's important, but it also matters where your friendships are and where your relationships are. And so there was kind of good news and bad news in there. The, the bad news is that even if you could magically mix up all the different socioeconomic groups and have all these you know, racially integrated colleges and socioeconomically diverse neighborhoods and schools, there would still be big divisions socioeconomically. And the reason they say that is because of something that they call friendship, friending bias. And friending bias is when you stick with people who are in your same uh, status level, which makes a lot of sense, right? We gather with people who are more like us most of the time. And so if you look at this chart, the friending bias happens in your neighborhood, in college, in high school, workplaces, recreational groups, not quite as much. But then in religious groups, it's actually, it's actually below zero. So it's a negative friending bias where um, in your faith community, there is actually a greater likelihood than any of these other places that you will develop relationships with people outside your socioeconomic class and therefore have a greater likelihood of social mobility and social capital. So all that to say is the church makes a difference. This might be the one hour or two a week where not only are you rubbing shoulders with people who are different from you, but you have the actual potential to lift each other up, to encourage each other, and to be lifted. You know, um, it makes a huge difference what your relationships are. And I was even thinking about this from our men's group. I wish I had um, had the picture of our, our group on Friday. I'm sure we'll get it We'll get it together. But our men's group, we're all men, but we're incredibly diverse among the however 20 people who were there on Friday uh, last a week ago, you know, in, in age, in the jobs we have, in the backgrounds that we have, in terms of, you know, whether we're struggling in one area or another. And when we come together because of the good news, because of the word made flesh, there's something that can actually be measured in terms of uh, this, whole, this whole bias thing decreasing. And we're open to each other in a way that we're not open in our neighborhoods, in our schools. Even if somehow we were to just like mix everyone up fairly, which would be really hard to do. But even if you could do it, you would still deal with this bias, um, is what the research is saying. But in faith communities and religious traditions, that is not as powerful. And I'm sure it has something to do with the Holy Spirit and how from the beginning of the early church, there was diversity. And it wasn't about, you know, being in a certain class. And whenever there was a big deal made about being too different or being in different groups, being Jew, Gentile, that was shown to be a problem and antithetical to what the kingdom of God is about. Isn't that interesting that sociology and economics has parallels with what we find in our own experience? Okay, let me see if it's time for, yes it is. Okay, so we have three more memes here. Um, this one I thought was great because <laughs> it's a Dolores restaurant, but some of the letters are not lighting up 
on this Dolores restaurant sign. However, the, the letters that do light up, if you put them together, it still says restaurant because you've got the R-E-S from Dolores and the Torrent. And so the meme says, when you're a mess, but God makes everything work out in the end. It's a good Christian meme. Uh, this one I thought was really funny. Back when I was in college, we didn't have uh, Twitter or memes 20 years ago or whenever that was. But this one, um, first of all, this person's account is J.R.R. Jokin, J.R.R. Jokin instead of token. So if you know the Lord of the Rings, that's a joke. If you don't, it's not a joke. Um, and then this is a VeggieTales joke. Bob the Tomato's full name is Robert Theodore Tomatillo. <laughs> Bob the Tomato. Uh, Bob the Tomato, the character from VeggieTales. Apparently somebody saw this and then tweeted Phil Vischer, who actually is the voice and creator of Bob the Tomato, and said, is that, is that correct? And Phil just says, it's lies, scandalous lies. <laughs> so for the record, from the source, Bob the Tomato's real name is not Robert Theodore Tomatillo. Okay, glad we... Glad we cleared that up for all of our uh, evangelical folks in the bubble. And then finally, um, ho hopefully this doesn't apply today. <laughs> um, sermons on a normal Sunday and sermons when you invite your friends. <laughs> but if you're chuckling and laughing, it's probably because you've experienced something like this, where you bring someone to hear a message, and then it's like fire and brimstone, and you're like, oh no, I thought it was going to be this other one. <laughs> um, so that may, that may be the case here, but hopefully not. Hopefully it's something we can laugh about happening in our past, but not, not our present. Okay, so we're getting close to the end. We've got our last point here. So stick with me as we get through the last two verses of our passage. And the third point in your outline is that we share our stories so that others can joyfully experience God with us. Experience. It's not just about agree, or it's not just about um, being affirmed. You're right. Good job. You picked the right religion. It's like, no, we share so that others can experience that same joy of the word of life. The one who gives life, the one who is the living word, Jesus, one who changes everything. So that's why we, that's why we do this. And that's why the early church did this. That's why it's described in such a way in verses three and four of John, first John one, which say, what you have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that, here's why, so that you also may have fellowship with us, so we can be friends, and more than that, eternal community members partaking in the life of Christ as the body of Jesus. And truly our friendship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So not only are we in this community, we are now with the Father and the Son because of the Spirit. We are writing these things, verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. And if I have it, I do have it. The message translation says it even more uh, 
tightly, although I wanted us to have the NRSV first so you can get the background so that when you listen to the message, it makes sense more. This is the message version of those same verses, three and four. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us, this experience of communion with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. We want you to enjoy this too, so that your joy can double our joy. That's, that's the translation of, um, so that our joy may be complete. So that your joy will double our joy. We're missing something if we're not sharing this, because then it's just kept in the bubble. It's just for those of us who grew up with it, or those of us who are surrounding ourselves with it the way I did in college which wasn't bad. It was just missing something. It was missing the sharing of stories outside the community. And so what we do when we share, when we eat, when we listen, when we do all these things from the BLESS acronym, we are participating in God's very own life. The reason Jesus came. The reason why Jesus is essential, because this community is not possible without the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not possible without the community, but it's not limited to the community because it's always looking outward to see who else can also double the joy, who else can be enfolded into this. And the last story I will share is kind of a library rabbit trail, I guess. Um, like I said, the book of 1 John challenges a lot of categories of what we typically expect in a book of the Bible. And so I was curious about some of the old um, commentaries that we have up in the church office upstairs. And um, I was just, you know, flipping through some of them to see what, you know, do they agree on this? Is there a debate about who the author is? And it's, you know, there's opinions all over the place because there's not much in the text about who or to whom it was written and when, because that's not really the point of why it's in the scripture for us. But I was reading more about the book of 1 John, and I came across an old commentary from 1981 that, you know, I, I was prepared to not really think too highly of because it's about as old as I am. Um, and it's got five different five different contributing authors, and I hadn't heard of any of them because they're before my time. Um, so I was like, okay, well, let me just open this one up and see what's in there. And the first few paragraphs were actually pretty good. And I thought to myself, hmm, this is actually aged pretty well. Uh, maybe newer commentaries aren't always better. This is pretty good stuff. Not bad for a 40-year-old book. Who, who wrote this section anyway? Which of those five authors was it? And, you know, you have to flip around to figure out who the people are. Um, and it turns out, it was written by a, a professor named Glenn Barker, and he died in 1984, so shortly after this was published, and maybe that's why I haven't heard of him, but he was uh, the provost at Fuller Seminary for a while. He was a dean of theology, and then he was the provost. And then I started thinking, this guy sounds familiar. Like, his last name, does that ring a bell? Barker? I don't know. And then I remembered... I wonder if this is the dad of my former co-worker, Charles Barker, 
who I worked with in InterVarsity in Southern California. And Charles Barker was a longtime pastor, now retired. He's like in my parents' generation. But he retired from being the pastor uh, at a covenant church in Pasadena for a long time. But I'm very curious, and I'm Googling, trying to see if Glenn is really Charles's dad, and Google won't tell me, even though the circumstantial evidence seems to point to that. And I remember conversations with, with Charles about his dad's career, and I think, yeah, it's got to be, be him, but I'm still on this rabbit trail. And lo and behold, as I'm searching for Glenn Barker, I come across this other book, totally unrelated, not a commentary, not scholarly, um, and it's written by this pastor who's writing a memoir in 2021. And it turns out this is the memoir of somebody named Richard Weisenbach, who was the lead pastor at Kalihi Union Church from 1977 to 1983. And I'm reading this in his memoir. And as I read through this section, it describes the church plant that I grew up in, where their associate pastor at the, t at the time, Jay Jarman, was sent with a group of about 25 people, my parents included, and they started the church the month I was born, in October 1980. And I'm reading about this, that the church at our house and how it's in our living room, you know, doesn't mention my parents or anything, but this is the same church that I remember. It's the place where I first made memories of faith sitting on the carpet as my parents strummed their guitars. That was church. Church was at our house. And we sang songs like Jesus name above all names and seek ye first and in moments like these and you are my hiding place and these, these old songs that bring me back. And I kept on reading, and what I discovered was, and this is the part I really wanted to share with you, what I discovered was there's a small section where, where he describes the celebration of that church becoming independent and on its own, where it's officially registered as its own church. Um, and they had a special service at Milani High School on Pentecost Sunday, 1981. And if you're paying attention to TJ's sermon in Pentecost 2022, you would know that that's the church's birthday. It's a, it's a day of celebration every year on, on Pentecost Sunday that harkens back to Acts chapter 2 when the first church was born. But it, on this Pentecost Sunday, they celebrated, and apparently um, there was a progress report that included these words, um, not at that service, but a couple years later, where Pastor Jay described the church's history, and he said, in October 1980, we had one house church with 17 adults and eight children. Today, 1983, we have six house churches with 109 adults and 71 children, and around 50% of the regular attenders have had no previous church experience. 45 new people have been baptized, new Christians for a new church. And there's no names in there, but I'm sure um, my parents would remember the names if they were listed there, because I remember being part of that experience as a little boy. And some of the folks in the Wellspring family today are actually folks who uh, were friends of my parents and part of that way back in the day, Auntie Faye Mamiya, Uncle Jonathan Wong, and Auntie Georgina Wong, uh, Shane Nakamura in my generation. And I share this not to harken back to the good old days when things were great and trying to get back to that. 
I share that because it could be that just as they were sharing their faith with people without church experience or with negative church experience that kept them away from church, what if today and this year is our good old days? What if we're in it right now at Wellspring? What if the friendships we are making across generations, across socioeconomic lines, across political opinions and socioeconomic backgrounds, what if we are in the, the good old days now? What if that is what's happening through God's spirit? And as we live this out, as we share our story, I believe it's part of our calling to be that place who welcomes, who eats, who hears and listens and pays attention, not to correct people or tell them where they're wrong, but simply because there is value in a friendship outside the bubble. There is value in getting to know people who you wouldn't otherwise get to know if it wasn't for this little old thing called Christianity, the church that goes back a long way and is spread throughout the world now and is different from any other organization where you might spend your time. Not just Wellspring, but any, any church that loves Jesus. It is a special place where lifelong friendships are built, where stories are shared, and where we get to be part of welcoming people into that. And so with that, let's close in prayer as we prepare for our time of communion. Lord, our stories are interconnected in so many ways that we don't see. We're connected through scripture. We're connected through stories that are written in books that we can only read part of online because of the free preview only gives us so many pages. But we're connected somehow. We're connected through the people who are mutual friends, the people who are new friends, and you are building that connection through the stories that we share. And so Jesus, as we prepare for this time of Eucharist and participating once again in sharing that life, I pray that we would experience once again your goodness, that joy, that circle that says, come on in so that our joy can double, so that we can be even more who you want us to be as your church. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.